Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. We kicked off this conversation that we're having today uh, with our Christmas experiences. If you can remember back that far, it was an amazing way for us to end 2023. Uh, we had full services, which always feels good. We're so grateful for all of, our, all of our volunteers who made it happen and all of you who invited like crazy and who showed up. Uh, by now, let's just do a show of hands. Like who's taken down the Christmas tree already? Most of us. Okay, some of you are still holding on. I realized I'm a complete hypocrite as it relates to this, by the way. Because if you can, like, rewind all the way back to Thanksgiving time, I was publicly shaming all of you who already had trees up. Because I'm like, there's still Thanksgiving. You got to remember that. But on this side, I'm kind of like, hold on to it if you want. Right? It's January. It's cold out there. <laughs> like, there's nothing you're missing. So it's up to you. Do your thing. I got you, Shanna. Uh, it's a new year. New year, new us. <laughs> um we did box up and put away our Christmas tree. Uh, but what we're trying to do with this series is to not box up Christmas and put it away, right? Because the message of Christmas is actually as relevant today as it was on December 25th. It's this message that tells us that the wonder of the presence of God has filled and floods our world. That Jesus arrived not just as a baby in a manger, but that Jesus' presence is still active and working in our world today. And, and so we want to stay aware and we want to stay awake and stay tuned in to that wonder in our everyday lives in a new year. And uh, last week, we acknowledged that it's really difficult for us to do that. that. That in our everyday lives, it's difficult to stay in that posture of openness and that sense of wonder because there are so many distractions that come our way. Uh, it can be difficult for us to pay attention to where God is and what God's doing and, and what it means for him to actually be with us. And what we said is that we suffer, many of us suffer from attention blindness. It's that thing where you focus on something so intently, you kind of block out all the other stuff. You get so focused on maybe all the things you have to do or just the pace of life or all the stress that you feel or whatever your thing may be. And, and when we do that, often we lose sight of where God is at and what God is doing and, and how he's showing up in our lives. We said that God is active in our world, but we often don't have the eyes to see him. If you can remember, we did this uh, awareness test last week where there was some basketball players passing a ball and you had to count the passes, but then this dancing bear came through. And unless you're really good, you probably didn't see it. I'm not even good enough to remember it was a dancing bear because later in the talk, I called it a dancing gorilla. And that just is what it is. I get confused easily. But the point is when we get so focused on other things, it can be easy for us to miss out on the presence and the activity of God in our lives. And that's a big deal because last week we said faith flows from our attention. That, that where we focus our, our hearts and our eyes and our mind actually shapes where our faith goes and how or if our faith grows. And so we wrapped things up last week with a little bit of homework. Okay, I, I gave you an assignment. We're not going to do a show of hands. There's no quiz today or anything like that. But the challenge last week was for all of us over the course of the past seven days to carve out five minutes of, of solitude or of quiet reflection and meditation. And before or after that solitude or silence, I challenged you to read through Psalm 23 and just see how God spoke to you in the midst of that. And again, I'm not going to like test you on how it went, but I can be honest for me uh, as a pastor, right? Even as a professional Christian, Monday morning rolled around and, and I'm like, oh yeah, I challenged them to do it. I should probably be a good leader, right? And like not just say it, but do it myself. And, and so I sat down and I was doing my thing and I was probably a minute in and that like monkey mind thing started happening for me where I'm like, okay, so, but what are we doing for dinner tonight? <laughs> okay, I'm going to listen to God, but like what's on the agenda for today? And like, I don't know if you're like me, but my mind can just drift like that 
so easily, and it can be so difficult for us to actually carve out that space to reflect and to hear from God. And, and if I'm honest, even assigning that homework uh, to a certain degree, it feels like a little woo-woo to me, right? That like we're starting a new year, and I'm like, here's the big thing for you, like just be quiet for five minutes and see what God does. It's like woo Right? Like, I just almost, even though I'm a professional Christian, even though I believe in what I'm saying, right, there's this piece of me that almost feels the same suspicion or the same doubt of, like, is that really enough? Are they really going to do it? Is it God really going to show up through it? And I think one of the reasons practices like silence and meditation and reflection can be really difficult and really uncommon, even for Jesus followers, is because we live in a world that is inherently suspicious of anything that feels transcendent or spiritual or less the material. We talked about this last week, that there's a term for this posture that's kind of taken over our world, and it was coined by a researcher of secularism. His name's Charles Taylor. He said that we live in a disenchanted world, that, that there once was an enchanted world not all that long ago where most people in the world believed in the supernatural in some capacity. Uh, people believed that God or the gods or spirits were like here among us in some capacity. People believed that we were a part of a cosmos that was packed full of meaning and story and narrative that could help us understand ourselves. Uh, but anymore, as we tend to approach our lives and our culture, uh, we take more of a what you see is what you get and approach. Right? We believe in the things that we can measure and understand and quantify and learn about, the things that we can touch and measure. And, and again, in the not so distant world, the world was more enchanted than we approach it today. Th that in the ancient world or even in the Middle Ages, uh, you can think about maybe those great mythologies and stories that were created where people believed that God lived among us and that there was meaning and mystery and we were like okay with that. We didn't know as much then as we do now, but that was okay back then. And I want to be clear, I said this last week, this isn't like my campaign to take us back to the Dark Ages, okay? <laughs> I I'm not saying like things were so much better before we had flush toilets. I'm a big fan of science, okay? I'm a big fan of all the things that we've learned and the things that we continue to learn. But my point in, in this whole series and where I hope that we head together this year is, is that for many of us, we have the dial turned up so loud on what's rational and practical and explainable and attainable that we ignore the things that we don't understand, that, that we turn down the dial on mystery, and on wonder, and on actually experiencing the presence of God with us. And, and don't get me wrong, in a disenchanted world, you can still have God. Uh, many people do, right? They have their version of faith or their version of truth. But the thing is, that truth or that God doesn't actually impact our daily lives that much. Because the things that ultimately matter in a disenchanted world are the material things. We're immersed in this world that suggests the grown-up understanding is the material, rational, explainable way. And so we talked last week about how this posture and this approach sometimes just comes from our distractions, right? It's not that we don't believe in God. It's not that we don't believe that God's active and moving. It's just that we don't pay any attention to where God may be acting and moving because we're so busy just doing our thing. But today, uh, what I want to do is I want to turn our attention to a different source of disenchantment uh, that shows up in our lives. And this source of disenchantment actually sounds like a good thing uh, on the surface. Uh, it's the idea of protection, that, that often protection can keep us from experiencing the wonder of God with us. And there are all sorts of ways that we try and protect ourselves in our world. Uh, I was thinking about, like, remember pre-2020 versus now? 
like hand sanitizer boomed during those years, right? Some of us, like we still set it out. Places where there never used to be hand sanitizer, there's hand sanitizer everywhere. Some of you should have been washing your hands before 2020, right? But you learned a new habit and, and that's a good thing. Like we're trying to protect ourselves from germs. Uh, as we were leading up to Christmas time around here, uh, the dynamic of the theater is there are a lot of schools that do their like end of the year field trip and they come and see a movie. So there were kids in and out like crazy. And Sarah was just like running around this place with Clorox wipes all the time. Just like get all the kid goo off. Like we are not getting sick before Christmas, clean everything. So we try and protect ourselves as it relates to our health. Uh, many of us try and give ourselves a sense of security, whether you own a security system and, and have that activated or some way of protecting yourself. Uh, I have a dog, okay? So uh, sh I've realized this past week that she has like different kinds of barks. There's like lighthearted, happy, like I see another dog, I wanna go play with it bark. That's like, yip, yip, yip. And then there's like, we fell asleep on the couch, it's 11 p.m., it's dark out, and she hears something creak in the house bark. That's like, right, like I'm gonna get you. And that's the bark that I'm like, yeah, I feel safe. Right, because so, she'll bark and then it wakes me up and then I'm like, okay, I'll go check it out. And more often than not, it's the wind or something like that. Which by the way, the image of that dog protecting me is hilarious because the worst thing that would happen is she would love somebody to death if they broke in. But at any rate, it's this way that we can feel safe at times. Um, I was thinking about how much I like to feel safe and protected over these past few days as the wind has been going crazy. Uh, because I live in an old house with old windows still. And, and so like Friday night, as it was really ramping up, it was like every hour I woke up to wah, 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 right of my windows just creaking. I'm like, what was that? And then wah, 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 it was the other room. I'm like, what's that? And so it's not been the most restful experience. Uh, this morning, I felt it again because it's very, very cold and my house is still very, very old. So it gets creaky in, in the cold. And I went uh, downstairs. I'm like, okay, we're doing church. Let's go figure it out. I'm taking my shower. And I turned on, we've got like a heater in the bath fan. And I'm like, I need it today. So I turned it on. And, and that heat kicking on in that cold house made such a loud crack at the top of my bathroom ceiling that I literally flinched because I thought it was all coming down on me. <laughs> like I was like, no, I'm okay. The bathroom's okay. I'm just easily scared. Uh, but we all like to feel safe, right? We all like to feel protected and it makes sense. It, it's not even a bad desire to want to be protected. Uh, in fact, it's a core desire that, that all of us feel to feel safe. Uh, there's this pyramid or this chart known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which you probably learned about at some point in school if you are married to or know a teacher, you probably hear about it often because it's kind of in the child development world. But basically Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, says that these are all the different needs that we have and they really do work like a pyramid where you can't reach the higher levels of personhood or of person devel personal development until the lower levels are also secured. So up there at the top, there's this idea of like self-actualization and becoming the best you can be or, or having respect and status or, or love and belonging. Like those are kind of upper level things that we pursue as people. But the idea of this model is you can't really pursue those things, at least to the extent that we all would long to until base needs are met, right? Like air and water and food and shelter, or do you see the next category? Safety needs, that sense uh, of feeling safe and prote protected. Safety is very foundational and, and there's nothing wrong with that, okay? It's a good thing for us to feel safe. But on a deeper level, right? Even like as you climb up the pyramid, sometimes we take that sense of protection and that desire for safety and we apply it to the higher levels of our personal development too. And, and that's where things can get kind of sideways. I, it's like we feel a desire to feel protected uh, even from things like disappointment. We're talking about wonder and big-hearted belief. And maybe if you're honest with yourself, you're a person who at one time felt that. 
You had a sense of wonder. You had a sense of belief and, and were leaning into the potential of what God might do in and through your life. Maybe you had big-hearted belief in a person or a dream or even an institution, and then you were let down by them. And in response to that pain, in response to that disappointment, you kind of wall yourself off, right? You back away. We tend to protect ourselves when we're let down in that way. Maybe for you, uh, you protect yourself because you were on the receiving end of some harsh words from somebody who was supposed to love you, right? You, you received harsh words from somebody who is in a close relationship with you. And uh, sometimes I think in our lives, it's easier for us to believe that the harsh things that somebody said about us is true than it is for us to believe that someone who loves us could be that harsh to us. Like, like we would rather internalize the message than believe that somebody could hurt us like that. And so again, we protect ourselves. We, we internalize these things that we really weren't meant to carry. Maybe as it relates to faith, you feel this when it comes to the arena of doubt and questions. I mean, a lot has been disrupted in our world recently. And maybe you're asking, like, how can I know what's true? And rather than risk being wrong or risk feeling foolish or risk trusting the unknown, you instead would rather shrink away. You'd rather draw back. The, the thing with all of these efforts to protect ourselves at these deeper levels is, ironically, they often have their root in belief, right? They start because we believed in something once, because we trusted something once, because we opened ourselves up once. Uh, cynicism and bitterness actually have their origin in belief and in trust. My favorite theologian, George Carlin, who is not a theologian, by the way, and not church appropriate, but he said this one time, which I think is so true. He said, inside of every cynical person, there is a disappointed idealist, right? Inside of every like grumpy, bitter, cynical person, there is one time somebody who believed in something and were let down. And rather than acknowledging the pain of that or navigating through it and staying open, what so many of us do is we become bitter and cynical and we kind of wall off and protect ourselves. And here's why I'm talking about this today. It's that if we want to reawaken the wonder of God with us and reawaken to the wonder of life with God, like right here and right now, challenging the things that we protect ourselves from is an essential step to getting there. O opening up our hearts a little more is an essential step to getting there because often we protect ourselves from the things we fear by closing ourselves off to them. We, we shrink back. And there's a pastor and author named Jonathan Martin who you're gonna hear from a lot today because he wrote a book that really has shaped some of my thinking around what we're talking about called Prototype, which I love the tagline of this book. Uh, he asked the question, what happens when you discover that you're more like Jesus than you think? But in this book, he, he talks about the ways that we tend to protect ourselves. And he said it this way, that when we protect ourselves from what we fear, we also undermine our capacity for wonder. That when we lean into our fears and when we like, hunker down and we wall ourselves off, we actually undermine our capacity for wonder. Because often to protect ourselves, we shrink back. We shrink back our expectations of God or, or of what our world is or could be like so that we don't get hurt if they're not met. We shrink back uh, on our view of ourselves so that we're not held accountable for the things that we fear. We shrink back and, and we grow bitter and weary because of pain that we've experienced that we don't want to feel anymore. So we just kind of lock that part of ourselves off and we build up a wall to protect ourselves. And, and I don't know about you, but for me, when I think about moments where I've been guilty of this, it actually like shows up in my physical posture, right? Like, like if I'm hurt or bitter or like trying to navigate through something difficult, I'm not like, hey, life's amazing, right? I tend to like actually shrink in and it's like I feel it in my chest and kind of, it's why like this is our most comfortable American posture, right? Because we're like, nobody's getting in the ear. No soft gooey core for me. Uh, and so like uh, we just are tempted to shrink back and they're understandable reactions. Sometimes they're even healthy reactions 
You know, sometimes when you've been through pain, you need to step back for a minute. You, you need to let yourself feel it. You need to protect yourself for a bit. And, and yet there's this essential concept in following Jesus that Jesus' follower John talked about. Uh, famously, John reflected on, on the God that he saw in Jesus, and, and he says that God is love. And he goes on and he says, whoever lives in love actually lives in God. This idea that we're talking about, right? Life with God, life aware to the wonder of God with us. He says, love is actually made complete in us when we live like Jesus. And then he makes this observation. He goes on and says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. So if we want to grow more aware to the wonder of the presence of God with us in our everyday lives, if we want to live like Jesus and live in love, as John says, then we have to do something about the things that cause us to fear and cause us to protect ourselves and call us, cause us to wall ourselves off because there is no fear in love. And, and in fact, perfect love drives away fear. You guys may or may not know this, but um, I actually didn't go to school for ministry. I didn't go to school to be a pastor. Some of you are like, that makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> I get it. Um, I actually got my bachelor's degree from Ball State uh, in public relations with a minor in marketing. And I don't know if you know what public relations is all about, but basically public relations is the practice of uh, helping businesses specifically or, or institutions or, or even individuals or brands communicate to their target markets in an effective way. Uh, basically, PR professionals help craft messages, help tell stories that help serve business purposes often. And, and there's a concept in the world of PR that's known as framing. And framing is kind of like the bread and butter of how you do public relations. Framing is this technique or it's this approach that's used to create stronger messages by focusing on how you want an audience to actually think or feel about an issue. So you think like, how do I want my audience to feel? And then you craft the message that will get them there. Uh, at worst, this is where we get the idea of spin, right? Like the people just manipulate things to try and get us to feel a certain way or to get us to do certain things. But all of us uh, feel the effects of framing in our lives. If you're not believing me yet, this is a great example of framing. Uh, the framing effect is the difference between 80% lean beef or 20% fat beef, right? We're all like, oh, 80% lean, that's healthy. But 20% fat, mm really indulging today, aren't you? Right? It's the same thing, but the way that we frame it shapes the way that we react to it. It's why uh, we may hesitate to spend $100, but we love 50% off 200. Right? It's, it's why 100 people took medicine and 70 of them got better. So we're like, great, that's highly effective. But if 100 people took this medicine and 30 of them didn't get better, we're like, ooh, I don't know, it seems experimental. Right? It's the same thing. But how we frame it shapes our reaction to it. And the thing is, whether we're aware of it or not, all of us are framing our experience of our lives all the time. All of us are framing uh, just what our lives are all about and what we shape and, and take in as meaning. We talked about it at Christmas a little bit, that we all live with some sense of narrative about ourselves. That, that your narrative is the story that you tell yourself about yourself. And you may not stop and think about it, but all of us have one of these. The, the narrative that you have is the story you believe that you're living. And there's a famous uh, psychotherapist named Carl Jung who introduced a lot of concepts that our world's kind of been built on, at least in terms of psychology. But he referred to this tendency that we have to view our lives through the lens of a story when he said this. He said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you'll call it fate. 
that there's these beliefs that we have under the surface about who we are, about how this world is, about where this world is headed. And until we make those, consci- those stories conscious, like we actually name them, we think about them, we challenge them, we'll just kind of go along with them and we'll act like it's our destiny. It just happened. This is just how I am. Our narratives and our framing often show up in the way that we answer questions like, am I safe here? Or, or, or do I belong here? Or, or, or they're the conclusions that we make about ourselves when we say, this is who I am. This is what I'm capable of. This is where my life is headed. All of us have some type of a perspective or a picture and answered that question, whether we've thought about it or not. But the problem is most of us frame our stories really poorly. Most of us tell ourselves things that aren't actually true about ourselves and we let them shape the way that we live. And so maybe a revealing question to answer about yourself this morning is what story do I believe I'm living in? Or phrased differently, how is the story that I'm believing shaping the life that I'm living? How are the things that I'm believing are true about myself or about others shaping the way that I actually live, interact with myself and with others? The thing about every story is every story has source material. It's very rare that there's like a brand new original story that's ever come out, right? That's why there's like all the sequels lining the halls here in the movie theater. Uh, But you can't come to Story Church and not hear a little bit about Star Wars. So you may or may not know this, uh, but Star Wars was created by George Lucas, a really creative guy in the 70s. But he didn't just like come up with the whole story in and of himself. Uh, Star Wars is actually based on source material uh, created by a guy named Joseph Campbell who's kind of in the psychology world, and he had this series of essays that eventually became known as the hero's journey. And the hero's journey is actually the story that you can layer so many different stories on top of because it's like Star Wars fits perfectly into that model and like Harry Potter fits perfectly in that model and all these stories that we love follow the source material of the hero's journey. Or or another example, um, in the office this week, Sarah and I were up here talking and she saw something about uh, the similarity between music from Star Wars and the music in Lion King. And she's like, hey, check this out because I talk about Star Wars all the time, right? And so we were looking at it and it was from the scene when Mufasa is like over the waters and Simba's down there and remember the big like, remember who you are. It's that moment. And and so we were talking about that and I said, oh yeah, that's Jesus's baptism. She's like, what? Like, yeah, the the Mufasa scene in in the clouds, that's that's Jesus's baptism just retold. Because remember, like Simba goes to the edge of the water, like Jesus goes to the water, and he has this moment, and he reflects. Jesus actually gets dunked. Simba just looks at the water. And then the spirit descends and, and confirms his identity. And then he goes on from that moment, and, he go, and he's the hero of the story. I'm like, it's Jesus' baptism. In fact, somebody in the first service came up to me, and they're like, that makes sense, because John the Baptist is Rafiki. Right? Like, <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. So we were talking about it. But the point I- is that Every story has source material. And I think in an effort for us to live more open-hearted towards the wonder of God, to to live more aware of the presence of God with us and where he may be in our stories, what I want to help us do at the time we have left is actually remember the source material of our stories through the lens of the story of God. It's what our mission statement is here as a church. and We're going to kind of do it pretty directly today. We want to connect people's story to God's story. And so often we lose sight of the wonder of God with us because we tell ourselves lesser stories than what God is actually telling of us. We we tell ourselves lesser stories than are actually true of us. And so what I wanna do is just in a few key areas of our life where our framing often gets really wonky, uh, I wanna look back at the source material and and hopefully open ourselves up again to believe in the wonder of God with us. So the first thing I wanna challenge us to reframe or reconsider is for us to embrace the story of our identity. And, And I don't know 
if you feel this way, I feel like in our world right now, especially as it relates to the next generation, it seems like we are in just this moment that's like a cultural identity crisis. I mean, there are more voices, more people speaking into who we should be and how we should be than ever before. It's like as the information has grown, all the noise has grown, and we're just left like trying to sort through the mess of what's really true. On top of that, there's been so much disruption over the past few years, so many different voices. It's like every institution that we once had culturally to rely on and to trust has in some way been challenged and questioned, and oftentimes for good reason. I mean, where there's injustice, we should challenge it. Where there's corruption, we should expose it. But as we've done that in all kinds of different ways, it's like we're left just wondering, okay, so if all of that's not as strong or as sturdy as I thought it was, who am I really? How do I define myself, right? If my family isn't what I thought my family was, what, what does that mean for me? If religious institutions, right, has the church been challenged in the past few years? Absolutely. And should we have been? Absolutely. But what if the church isn't, as good or as stable as I thought it was. What does that mean for my faith? What does that mean for who I am? How about government? Okay, it's an election year. We're gonna just skim the surface, right? But has there been some tension in, in how we operate and how we gather ourselves together politically? Absolutely. Uh, like, think about 2020, right? The criminal justice system, uh, something that's supposed to keep us safe and secure. Has that been challenged? Has that been questioned? Left and right. The way that we engage with and consume media, e even the question of what's true, Fake news versus real news. Do we fact-check everything? It's all been so disrupted, and so we're left wondering, how do we actually define ourselves? How do we actually discover what's true in the midst of the mess? And I think one casualty of this dynamic that we're navigating culturally together is there's been a loss in many of our young people's lives, especially, of a sense of confirmation or of initiation, maybe is a better word for it. When I'm talking about confirmation, um, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, so when I was like 12 or 13 years old, I was invited to actually take a class that was called confirmation class. And basically confirmation class is when you take young people and, and kind of pass on the 101 level version of the faith. So we sat through this class with my pastor and, and he explained stuff. And at the end of that class, after several weeks of like studying and learning together, I was confirmed into the Methodist church. It, it was like, hey, we acknowledge that you're a part of this church and it kind of a transition uh, from being a kid to being a young man. A and it had a significant effect on, on my sense of belonging to that community cultures all throughout the world have had rites of initiation, right, that, that you mark when a young girl becomes a young woman or a young boy becomes a young man, and there's all kinds of different sources for that, whether it's like the village elder or a church community or something that you do in your family, but as our world has gone on and as we've grown more and more skeptical of things, our rites of passage and our like initiation institutions have almost gone away, a and so we've left young people kind of to fend for themselves and figure out, okay, where do I belong? Who, who am I? How do I make sense of this world? And uh, there's a, a thinker, he's a priest named Richard Rohr, who I really love reading. Uh, he actually wrote a book all about specifically male initiation rites and, and like w what does it look like for a young boy to become a young man. But as he talks about this idea of initiation, he says there's two components that are necessary in initiation. There's naming and there's wounding which that part feels weird, but we'll get to it in a second. Basically, Richard Rohr says that like, the power of an initiation moment is when you name who you are, and, and then this wounding shows up at times along the way where you get humbled. <laughs> you get humbled and you discover where you fit. You, you get named for who you are, and then you discover where you fit. And there's this Christian initiation institution, if you want to think of it in that way, that we call baptism. Because baptism is meant to be like a before and after symbol 
representing us committing our lives to Jesus. You say the old person that I was goes under the water and I'm going to walk in a new life with Jesus as I walk out of the water. And so for just a second, I want to go back to Jesus's baptism. Because if you want to talk about a moment where identity was clearly communicated and clearly confirmed, it happened in Jesus's life at this moment. And and the stakes were really high. Uh, Rafiki, I mean, John the Baptist had started uh, really building up the tension. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, had built this following, and so people were listening to him, and he was announcing that the kingdom of God was coming near, that the Messiah was going to arrive, and he made big promises about it. He said, someone is coming soon who's greater than I, and he says he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, which we have like kind of a concept of today, but back then they're just like, ooh, sounds interesting, right? We don't know what that means. He says he's going to baptize you in fire. He's like, whoa, that sounds intense. He says that this one who's going to come is going to separate the wheat from the chaff, and he'll burn the chaff on the threshing floor with a never-ending fire. And so the people are like, whoa, right? Like, that's some power. Some stuff is about to go down out here in Galilee. And, and then Jesus shows up. And it says, then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, but John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, John said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. And so eventually John agrees to baptize him. But it's not what John expected, right? He had the crowd all fired up, like, Jesus is coming, here he goes. And Jesus shows up, and he's kind of just like everybody else. Jesus shows up and he's like, John, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, no, 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 no. And he's like, no, no, you baptized Fred last week. Okay, my turn today. Like, he's just like all the rest of the people. One of my favorite theologians, uh, N.T. Wright, wrote in a commentary about this scene. He says, it would be like if you had paid like top dollar for tickets to go see the greatest symphony orchestra and you were in your amazing seats and the theater was beautiful and like the huge curtain was drawn and you're waiting and you're anticipating and then the curtain is opened up and there's just a single little old balding man with a flute and he starts playing and you're like, and it's beautiful, right? He's incredibly skilled, but you're just like, that's not what I paid for, (laughs) right? Like that's not what I expected. Jesus shows up. And he disappoints John's grand expectations because he's just like everybody else. And and in fact, uh, Tom Wright says it in this way. It's like Jesus seems to be identifying himself, not with a God who sweeps all before him in judgment, but with the people who are themselves facing that judgment and needing to repent. It's this incredible thing, right? God with a body shows up and he goes, I'm with these people. I'm going to do the same things they do. You baptize them, baptize me because it's what God requires. But the real power of this moment is what's yet to come, because John eventually is convinced, and he goes through with it, and Jesus is baptized. And Matthew goes on and says, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. If you've ever heard that story before, you've seen that moment before, right? I think what we're tempted to do is go, wow, Jesus was really special, right? Like maybe you've been baptized and you're like, that didn't happen for me. (laughs) But but like God's voice comes down and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And that's certainly part of the story. I mean, Jesus is special and is incredible. But the thing that we often overlook, the thing that we often don't understand about what God did for Jesus and his identity is that God wants to do the very same thing for each of us too that God looks down at Jesus and he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. 
before he ever did anything all that remarkable to please God. Like if you read through Matthew's account of Jesus' life, it's like he's born Christmas, woohoo, that's amazing. He gets lost in the temple along the way, and then he's baptized. He didn't have time to do any miracles or, or anything, at least not that we have recorded. He was just an ordinary guy living in the Middle East at the time. And, and yet he's baptized, and this identity is conferred on him. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jonathan Martin, that author I was talking about, reflects on this in this way. He says, many times in the Old Testament, God refers to human beings as beloved, but when God called Jesus his beloved, Jesus did something truly remarkable. He believed him, and he lived every moment of his life fully committed and convinced of his identity. See, the power is not necessarily the special identity that God was conferring on Jesus as his beloved son. The power is that Jesus believed God about his identity. And from that moment, Jesus' ministry begins. It's like Jesus is given this identity as a loved child of God, and through that identity, everything else that Jesus does flows. And here's the point for you and me today, as it relates to our identity. It's the same thing. You are a beloved son or daughter of God before you say or do anything. That God's posture for you starts with love as his child. And when it comes to your heavenly father, you have nothing to prove and you have nothing to hide because he says, this is my son, this is my daughter who gives me great joy just by existing, just by being. And I think the trick for us is to learn how to believe it. Right? The trick for us is to frame our story, to frame ourselves in that way first, to say, you know what, who I am at the core of my being, it's not what I do or what I've done, it's not how much I make, it's not my clothes, it's not my appearance, it's not my health, it's none of those things. At the core of my being, I am loved by God and he takes great joy in me. If we could start there, wouldn't it make all the rest so much clearer? <laughs> wouldn't it make all the rest so much easier? Like how different would your life look right now if you really believed you were loved by God just for existing? It's the first area we need to reframe the story. The second uh, an invitation for us is to embrace the story of our circumstances. And I should probably reframe that, that we need to embrace the story of our circumstances through the lens of the story of God. Because when we go through difficult moments, so often that's where we get the most wonky in terms of the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. Uh, I mentioned that the, the idea of initiation, it starts with naming. That's what happens to Jesus at his baptism. And then it moves on to wounding. And do you know what happens to Jesus immediately after he's baptized? You would think he like went out and he started preaching and teaching and healing and doing all these amazing things. But rather, there's this incredible moment. The dove descends. It's like, oh, this is my son. And then Jesus wanders off into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Most people, when we baptize them anymore, we're not like, no, go be with the devil for 40 days. <laughs> That's not really the trajectory. But Jesus kind of moves into this difficult moment, this moment of temptation, this moment of struggle. And, and I'm not suggesting that if you like get your identity right with God and you start there, that then the devil's gonna show up necessarily. But what I do know about your life and about my life is that suffering is inevitable in some capacity. That difficulty is gonna show up. That our circumstances often don't go the way that we want them to go. And it's those moments of difficulty that can so often squash the wonder out of us. That can so often cause us to, to protect ourselves. Again, to shrink back, to try and hide and bury the pain. And here's the thing, in those moments of suffering difficulty, it may be when we most need to reframe the narrative or the story that we're telling ourselves. 
Because there's this version of Christianity that's become popular in more recent days that essentially makes Jesus like the greatest social media influencer ever, and he wants to go help you be healthy and wealthy and live your best life now and all that stuff. And that's exciting, and there may be some nuggets of truth in some of that, but it's like way far from the sum total of who Jesus is and how he actually talked about himself and how he talked about this life. In fact, there's a moment uh, where Jesus tells his followers about all the terrible things that are going to happen to him. He talks about how he's going to suffer, how he's ultimately going to be killed, and how there's going to be all this violence on the other side of it. And then he explains why he was telling them that. And he goes on and says, I've told you these things so that in me you can have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. See, Jesus doesn't show up and offer this invitation to like an up and to the right kind of lifestyle. If anything, Jesus shows up and he says, come join me in suffering. It's not like a really amazing appeal to a lot of us if we actually lean into it. But what he says is in this world, you will have trouble. He doesn't say like, maybe if sometimes things go bad, he says, you will. You're going to face it at some point. It's going to get difficult. But take heart because I've overcome even that. See, see, Jesus is reframing suffering right there for us. He says, you're going to go through it, but suffering and difficulty doesn't have the final word. That suffering and difficulty isn't where the story stops. And, and when we get that wrong, it has real consequences in our lives. This is where bitterness and cynicism like take off. It's when we've been hurt, and instead of like acknowledging it, instead of saying, look, I have trouble, but I can still take heart, instead we go like, nope, I'm fine. <laughs> like, nope, not going to affect me, not going to deal with that pain. We bury it. And Richard Rohr, that priest I mentioned earlier, one time said this, that pain that isn't transformed is transmitted. Isn't that true of our world? Right? We've all been through so much. I mean, even just in recent years, so much disruption, so much confusion, so much pain. And we don't, many of us have the tools to actually deal with it. And still, instead of allowing our pain to be transformed, we're just hurting each other all the time. We're a bunch of hurt people hurting people because pain that's not transformed ultimately is transmitted. A and so how is pain transformed? Well, I think one way that pain can be transformed is when we actually allow ourselves to find beauty even in the midst of it. It's when we're courageous enough not to bury the pain and ignore it, but also not to allow the pain to have such influence in our lives that we let it turn down the volume on our hope and in our faith that we can actually be people who say like, yes, this is painful. Life is difficult, but I still believe suffering doesn't have the last word. I can hold both of those things at the same time. Jonathan Martin says it in this way. He says, you can spot people who don't know Jesus very well because the world that they see is always so ugly. Even if they use all sorts of religious language, don't be misled. People who get touched by Jesus don't ignore the hurt and pain in the world and yet they see so much beauty in it, right? We allow ourselves, if we want to reframe our story through the way that God sees us, we allow ourselves to acknowledge that in this world we have trouble, and yet we take heart because he's overcome the world. It may not make sense to us right now, but someday we believe in the promise of this redeemed creation that we are a part of even now, and we hope and we wait. So going back to the source, we embrace our identity from God. We navigate difficulty through the lens of his story. And then finally, as we're wrapping up, I think we also need to embrace the story of our calling 
And calling is one of those like loaded religious words that sounds like, okay, I'm supposed to move to Africa and be a missionary or something, right? Or I can remember when I was uh, first considering being a pastor, uh, the church that I was initially a part of had kind of its roots in the Baptist church and calling is a big deal in the Baptist church, right? Like you want to be called by God to be a preacher in that context. And so I remember asking the question, like, ah, am I called? And, and honestly, I reached the conclusion, I'm like, I don't know, but can I volunteer? <laughs> like, that, that's kind of, I was like, you can use me if you want, God, but I don't know. Like calling can feel like pressure because often I think what we do is we disqualify ourselves because we feel like we aren't far along enough yet. We feel like I couldn't possibly do great things for God because I know who I am and how I am and where I've been and what I've done. And so we disqualify ourselves. And I was thinking about this. Uh, one of my favorite artists is a guy named Scott Erickson. We actually uh, did a study of his together a couple of years ago uh, called Honest Advent where we looked at some of the honest details of the Christmas story. Uh, but Scott is an artist, he's a painter and a communicator. And in one of his books, he writes about this moment that he was struggling with his sense of calling. He was struggling with the narrative that he was believing. And uh, in the book, he says that he was working on some pieces of art and he was getting frustrated because it didn't look the way he wanted it to. And so he started telling himself, he paid attention to that inner voice and he's like, I'm never gonna be a great artist. I and look, maybe you've never done like creative work like art or music, but if you try to sport or even try to like, get better at work, all of us probably can identify with that moment, right? Where we, we have a skill, we wanna develop that skill, we see who's down the road from us and we get started and we're bad at it. And we're like, I'm never gonna be that. <laughs> I'm never gonna get there. And so we just wanna give up. But Scott was thinking about this idea of narrative. And, and so he caught himself saying, I'm never gonna be a great artist. But he said, no, 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 no. I have to reframe that thought. And so instead of saying, I'm never gonna be a great artist, when he was frustrated, he started like telling himself, I'm on my way to being a great artist. It's the difference between I'm not there yet as judgment versus I'm on my way there as progress and calling and growth and development. And because he is an artist and artists are often snarky and have dark senses of humor, he actually made it into a mug, uh, which looks like this. <laughs> it says future famous dead artist, <laughs> because in the arts world, often you don't really make it until the other side. Uh, but he, he drinks out of that mug and he's kind of funny, or at least I think so. But he says when he drinks of it, it's a reminder that I'm on my way, right? I, I may not be there yet, but I'm on my way. I'm becoming who I want to be. And I think the same thing can be true for us as it relates to God's calling on our life. Maybe you've disqualified yourself because you're like, I'm not there yet, or I don't have enough, or I'm not good enough, or I don't even know the direction. But what if you just allowed yourself to be on your way? What if you allowed yourself to lean into the gifts and the calling and the abilities that God has put in you and in the context of loving community like this, which is what we're supposed to be, by the way. It's not like religious entertainment here. We're supposed to be like a group of people who, who call out the best in one another and support one another and becoming who God has called us to be. Or, or as Paul said it to the church in Ephesus, he wrote this. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, which that's literal. He was in prison writing this. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And I heard that as a kid, and I really, we've talked about this recently. I honed in on the worthy side, right? To me, this was like a religious bludgeoning tool that was like, do better, be better, live a life worthy. But anymore in my faith, I'm leaning in on the that you've received part of the story, right? What, what if you let God frame your sense of calling by leaning into the things that he's uniquely given you to do, the unique abilities that you have, the skills or the interests that you, that you lean into, the way that your personality is wired, we're all different and that's not bad, it's meant to be beautiful. As we lean in and seek to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received, 
from our heavenly father. Here's the point today. The point is that the story you believe shapes the life that you live. That the story that you're believing about yourself shapes the life that you're living right now. And if we want to reawaken to the wonder of God with us and reawaken to the wonder of life with God, we may need to do a little reframing. Like what if this year, we're still pretty early on, what if you really chose to connect your story to God's story by believing what God says about you first? That, that when it comes to your identity, you're gonna start uh, with who he says you are, that you are loved from the start, that you can't undo that, that you can't add to it, but you should live out of it. What if in the midst of difficulty, you recognize that, yeah, pain is there and pain can be there, but pain can also be redeemed, that suffering does not have the last word, that we can actually take heart in the midst of it, and that pain can be transformed into something beautiful, not just transmitted to the next person. And what if you started to step into the calling you have received by believing that it's okay that you're on your way, and maybe that's exactly the spot that God wants to meet you right now? Let me pray for you. God, uh, there's a lot packed into this. I mean, again, our story and the way that we view ourselves shapes so much of how we live. And so God, I just pray for my friends here today that they would have clarity around what a next step they can take is. God, that uh, for the person in the room who maybe beats themselves up, maybe they're struggling with that question of who am I really? And they're looking to anything to find an answer. God, I pray that we could look to you first, that we could find our belovedness in you and that that could be the source of everything else that we do. God, for my friends going through difficulty right now, which can feel so overwhelming, I pray that your voice would be louder than the pain, that they would create space for it, that they wouldn't hide away, that they wouldn't bury it, but that you would show them a way to hold their pain and hold hope at the same time, that they could actually be transformed through trusting you in the midst of pain and in that way, stop their pain from being transmitted to others. And God, I pray for all of us that we could discover clarity around our calling, that we would stop listening to the negative voice that says, I'm not good enough or I'm never gonna be. And instead we would give ourselves permission to just be not there yet. And, and that you would lead us and you would guide us and you would develop us on our path. God, we pray all of that in the powerful name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.